Hi everyone, my name is Nikki Bell and I'm one of the co-founders of Fundraising Everywhere and Fundraising Everywhere is an online training space for you so that you can have the tools, the confidence and the connections you need to be able to do your job well and feel amazing doing it. Our monthly webinars are just a little taster of the awesome training and people that are available through the Fundraising Everywhere community. So I hope that you enjoy today's webinar. And if you do, please do come and join us at one of our future virtual conferences. We have conferences every month right through uh, the year. Um, and they're a great space to network, to increase your skills um, and find out, you know, all of the amazing things happening across the sector and how you can adapt that and apply it to your own organization. Um, and if you love all of it and you just want to come to everything and there's just so much there uh, that you couldn't possibly fit it all into one day, we do have a membership with over a thousand fundraisers in there who are using fundraising everywhere to reach their personal and professional goals. And um, so I'm going to hand over uh, to today's presenter for the webinar and we will see you at a fundraising everywhere event very soon. Hello everyone, thank you so so much for joining myself and Sarah for today's webinar which is Christmas in June, end of year appeals. I know, I know, how could we already be talking about Christmas but I promise it will be really really worth it. So before we get started I just want to point out that there are a couple of polls and uh, questions in the feedback and polls section. So first question is if you start thinking about your end of year appeal yet. I'm Muna. I am a fundraiser at heart, but currently I am the UK lead for Raisley, a fundraising platform I'll tell you a little bit more about. Uh, but previously, I was head of marketing and fundraising at The Bike Project, which some of you may have heard of, a refugee charity. And when I was there, I got the chance to work with the incredible Sarah Goddard. And so I'm so pleased she's joining me today. So I'll hand over to her to introduce herself. Awesome. Thanks, Muna. I'm Sarah. I am a fundraiser as well, but at heart, live and breathe it every day and have done for about 16 years. I work across public fundraising, so that is community events, individual giving, stewardship, all of that great stuff that brings your supporters closer and into the heart of what you do and inspiring them to get involved and make a difference. Um, I think, Lena, I believe there is actually someone from the Bike Project here today. I can't see in the chat who's here, but hello. Awesome squad and awesome people that are here. Uh, ready to learn, ready to go. Nice. Um, awesome. So before we get started, um, I am just going to showcase the question that we just asked. Um, so we asked, have you started thinking about your um, end of year appeal yet? And I think we've got a number of votes already. So let's go ahead and show that. Um, oh, yes, 76, 75%. My goodness, that's really, really good. So excellent. So you won't be uh, too bored or too nervous in our presentation now. Hopefully we can help you come up with some uh, additional uh, little ideas um, and help you really, really supercharge your fundraising. For those all oh, know is coming in hot now. That's all right. For those of you that haven't, this is why we're here. This is why we're doing it in June. Do you have that? You've still got plenty of time to be planning these things, do you not? Absolutely, absolutely. So we've got a jam-packed schedule and we want to leave some time um, to ask some questions at the end. So let's jump straight into our presentation and we will take you through it. Now, our presentation will be based on uh, data from uh, all the... Uh, charities that use Raisley uh, as a fundraising platform um, with some 
amazing um, stats and ideas um, that we have pulled out, but also some really, really fantastic tips um, pulled together by Sarah, obviously, who's a public fundraising specialist, as she mentioned. And then at the end, Sarah is going to tell you all about uh, the importance of stewardship. And I'm particularly looking forward to learning a bit more. So we've already introduced ourselves. So as I mentioned, I'm Mona. I've worked with lots of charities, large and small, across the UK. And this is Sarah. Um, what I love about Sarah is that it's very true that she is a believer in the power of words and stories and kindness. So I'm really excited to learn from her today. So at Raisley, I do want to be clear that any kind of data that we provide to you, we take really strong responsibility in providing very accurate and useful information um, so that we can be sure to give you the information you need to um, run the most successful and efficient campaigns. So the data that you will see today has been pulled from over 6,000 fundraising campaigns and a total of 1,800 non-profit organizations. The focus of today will be on end-of-year appeals. Before we get going with that, I want to tell you a little bit about Raisley. We are a fundraising platform. We have eight customizable templates, uh, which are for you to use. You can include things like custom information fields, and it has comprehensive reporting functionality. We support regular giving and direct debit, and also take in automatic gift aid for you. The wonderful thing about Raisley is that we're an open API, uh, which means your developers or your agencies uh, can get under the hood, so to speak. But we also have out-of-the-box integrations for Salesforce and uh, Raises Edge NXT integrations. We, today, we're also going to give away some lovely goodies. So within your delegate bag, you will have um, several giveaways, including the chance to register for a workshop where we will help you build your appeal, um, your, your appeal within 60 minutes. But we're also giving away a free framework, step-by-step -step guide um, to help you launch the biggest and best appeal you've ever had. As you can see, we've been trusted by organizations across the UK. Um, you might recognize some of these. Um, and also, as I mentioned, the bike project, I am going to toot the team's horn because they are absolutely amazing. So this is the workshop that I mentioned before we dive in. You can use your QR code there to sign up. However, I've got a colleague who will be who's in the chat who will be sharing some links, the lovely Hayley. Um, so if you see Hayley um, sharing uh, links, um, then you can add that in there. Now, why Christmas? Why are we talking about Christmas in June? I know it's warm outside. I know we're all sweltering with no heat and no houses with no aircon, but it's really, really important that we have a quick look forward. And the reason for that is because it's been an unprecedented time for the last few years. And this has had a direct impact on the charitable giving landscape. So the donation figures you may have seen, they are static. This means that there aren't any more people that are donating. So although in 2022, the, donate, the total donated amount went up, this was largely driven by the war in Ukraine. The actual number of people that donated has gone down and is continuing to go down. We all know the cost of living. I'm sure we are very sick of hearing this word, but it is having a tangible impact. In 2022, almost 70% of people indicated that they would need to cut back their costs. And that was in 2022. We all know inflation has continued to increase. Almost 20% of those people said that they would, it would be likely that they would cut their charitable donations. And I know that this is a fundraising uh, 
platform, but um, and we are talking about fundraising, but I like to think about charities holistically. So the volunteering numbers are also down. Individuals are spending less time and less effort uh, with their favorite charities. Now, how can you combat that? There are a couple of tips that we are going to share with you that we have seen across the various um, uh, across the various um, charities that we have. So the first tip is leveraging matched giving. Matched giving is a wonderful tool that you can use to double the donations, and we will have some tips and tricks on how to do that. But using the data of the charities that run end of year appeals on Raisley. We have seen that those who do not use matched giving, they raise a respectable amount, about 3,000 uh, just over over the course of their um, appeal or their campaign lifetime. But if you look at the charities that have um, used matched giving, you can see that their impact is quite a lot more, so 3.2 times more. What I do want to make clear here is that this amount, this 11,200 odd, actually doesn't include the matched the donation, um, the matched amounts either. It is just the donations that the public have given. And the reason for that is because the public tend to get really excited about um, having uh, a campaign that has already been proven to have donors uh, involved. Um, Sarah's going to give you a couple of tips, but before that, I'd love to draw your attention to the bike project. Um, so this is a campaign, a Christmas campaign, um, before I left it, the team team was running and the team has always done matched giving, which has been incredibly successful using language such as um, every pound you raise will be doubled, has always allowed us to smash the goals. Sarah is going to give you a few more tips on on how you will be able to actually gather those, um, those uh, uh, matched donors. But what you want to do is you want to start securing the match donors three to six months before the campaign launch. So you want to research your current supporter list, you want to decide on an ask, and then you want to secure that commitment before the campaign is finalized so that you can wrap it into your communication. Now, I'm sure there will be many of you thinking, well, we don't have you know a huge number of supporters or very rich supporters. How are we going to get a matched uh, donor? Over to Sarah. Thanks, Linda. That's really interesting as well. I thought that 11 grand, when we were looking at this um, uh, this data, I thought that included the match giving. So I love that that's that massive, massive impact. And that 11 grand is their match. Yeah. Um, so a few things to think about doing a match funding campaign. There is always a lot of talk about the big schemes, such as the Big Give. Other organised schemes uh, do exist. And they can be really, really fruitful. If you're a charity where that is really working for you, it's a platform and a format that your donors know and love. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. But do not feel that this is the only way that you can run a match funding campaign. You can very, very, very easily run your own. It's just about bringing that language in. And as Mullah said, getting those donors set up a good amount of time in advance, getting them lined up, understanding what is the amount they're going to be able to offer to match fund and then just communicating that, communicating that with your supporters really, really, really clearly. X amount is going to be um, doubled. That could be a limited amount. You might have for your campaign, um, you know, you might have a target in mind of raising, say, 10 grand. But maybe your donors, your supporters are going to match it, could only offer five grand in match funding. That's fine. That 10K is your internal target, remember. So you can say the limited donations, only the first 5,000 will be matched to make your gift be doubled to double the impact of your gift today 
make sure you give sooner rather than later. And donations in the door sooner rather than later is only good for your charity because it can be start putting to work sooner. It can work harder for you. So really think about running your own campaign, using that language, that language that we know works, double your gift, double your impact. And don't worry if it feels like it's a limited amount. Make that a selling point for your campaign. A few more things to think about where you can find these supporters and these donors. Major donors is an obvious one. You know, have you got someone who gives very, very generously to your cause who could make one off a one-off gift of, say, five grand, ten grand, whatever it might be, that will then leverage those match donations? You might not have a major donor program as yet. You might think you haven't got anyone. Go to your data. Go to your supporters. Look for people who have given at significant levels. Start doing some research on them. Start finding out who knows who. It's very possible you might have a major donor that's hiding in plain sight. So this is why we start this early, right? So we can be doing that research. Absolutely. Definitely. Um, think about companies. Think about the companies that you work with. When you work with a company, with a corporate, and you want to be able to make sure there is a partnership element, you know, you're working together. A match funding campaign, that's brilliant PR for them. You know, they've got their logo on it. They're matching their donations. Where your major donors might be thinking quite, they might want to be anonymous. They might not want to shout that they're the one matching it. Companies generally will. So if you've got a company that matches your values, you know, you've done all of that good due diligence work, that could be a great example too. And also, if you really just don't have those networks and those people, think about having some community groups or some community supporters or a number of mid-level donors come together to form a match-giving pot. You know, how empowering must that be for a number of groups who might be able to give or donate £500 at Christmas or £1,000? Ask them if they can do that fundraising a bit earlier to form this match-giving pot and know that their donations are going to be doubled. Because that same language around double your gift, double your impact works for the people creating your match funding pot too. So be creative. Really think about who else you could go to and who else you could ask to form that match-giving pot. You don't need to know Richard Branson. You know, I absolutely love that approach. And honestly, it's not something I'd ever thought of when I was um, more uh, in fundraising at an actual charity. But I love that approach because all of us will have, you know, a number of supporters. They don't have to be very, very wealthy. Public fundraising at its best. Cross those teams over, guys. No silo working. Absolutely. Okay. Tip number two. How can you go even further? Well, for us, it's all about engaging and delighting your donors with tailored communication. Sarah and I are big, big advocates of making sure that you've got your comms and your stewards set absolutely tightly nailed. And we're going to give you some more tips on how to do that and also show you what the data showed on our end as well. From our perspective, we have seen across that those 1800 nonprofit organizations that those who did not use messages saw again a really respectable um uh, donation amount, £3,000 across the range of the, the the campaign itself. It's really, really not bad. And what we want to do is we want to actually see if we can push that up using messaging. And we saw that when you used messages, you saw that actually double. So if you used between one to 10 messages, that doubled. And then if you used even more, you saw that donation um, lifetime donation amount of your campaign increase even more. Now, the first thing you'll probably be thinking is, I don't want to bother my supporters. They've donated to me. I don't want to bombard them. But you have to remember, you're not Deliveroo or H&M or whoever's bugging them in their inbox. You're a charity that they have chosen to give to. And so it's really important that you give them updates, celebrations and milestone um, 
data so that they can go ahead and get that um, get that kind of feel good boost from having supported you. Now, a few more tips. You want to plan ahead with your comms, but you want to leave a little room for spontaneity. So as I mentioned, at the very minimum, you want to send your a thank you and an update. If you want to share a little bit more in terms of content, you can set up those kind of milestone celebrations. So once you reach a certain percentage um, and even ad hoc, have you got another you know massive go- um, corporate that came on board? You want to go ahead and you want to shout about that. And then the cherry on top is all about personalizing and quantifying. I'm a really big fan, and I believe Sarah is as well, of the shopping list. Donors can pick and choose what they want to uh, support, but it also quantifies for them what they are giving you. And you can also further the ask. You don't have to ask them again for another donation, but you can ask them to become a volunteer, to sign up to your newsletter, to fundraise for you. It doesn't always just have to be about, right, we got a bit of money from them during the appeal and we'll leave it there. Here comes Sarah with some more amazing tips. <laughs> oh, actually, before we get started, sorry. Um, study. Love a case. Yeah, we have got a case study. So this is an organization um, that is actually based in Australia. They're called um, Sweat With Pride and they do comms really, really well completely segmented um, based on which team you sign up with, based on how much you have donated. And I actually really, really believe that that is the best way to communicate with your with your donors. Give them the information that is relevant to them and how they have interacted with you. And Sweat With Pride does that incredibly well. Here we go. Awesome. So let's talk about this in a bit more detail. So what I love about Razorly is that we can take a lot of really known Um, tools, techniques, ways of working for traditional direct marketing appeals. And we're seeing similar patterns working online digitally. So when you're thinking about communicating to your supporters, if we were doing a traditional postal DM appeal, which some of you may well be doing, we would often think about different segments, different groups. That's essentially what segmenting is, right? It's breaking your audience into smaller groups based on different factors. And really, it's better not to overcomplicate it. If you happen to be here from a very large charity with a complex direct marketing team or have worked at a big boy charity before, you may know that there are some very complex hierarchies, stewardship, segmentation, sometimes for any one set of donors, 30, 40, 50 different segments. Smaller charities, charities with small and more modest resources, you do not need to be doing that. But do think about what you know about your supporters and where you can, where it's feasible, where it makes sense, group your audiences into segments in a common way. Now, most commonly, like with that brilliant case study we shared there, this might be by actions they take um, or ways they most commonly support. So very, very simply, you might think about sending slightly different messages to give to your Christmas appeal to your one-off donors. That might look a little bit different to the message to your regular donors, to your volunteers, to your campaigners, to your fundraisers. Five segments tops absolute tops. You don't need more than that. You might not even need all of those. Regular donors and reference that. I realize that you already give regularly to us and that is phenomenal. You're amazing. We need your help more than ever this Christmas because you're one-off donors. You know, reference they've given in the past. I know in the past you've given to appeals like this and I hope you can again. Your volunteers, you give so much through your time. That is amazing. We wouldn't be asking if we didn't need your help this Christmas, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you can also think about grouping people by motivations. If you know this, if you've got some insight to your supporters, think about what motivates them to support your cause. 
Because if you know what motivates a supporter or a group, you can tailor your messaging, your stories, your communications, your asks, your stewardship appropriately. These are going to be very off the top of my head, so I hope I can do this. Let's take the bike project as one example. Um, one person might support the bike project because they love cycling. The whole idea that more people in London and major cities will have a bike, can travel around, it's eco-friendly, it's cost-effective, it's great for the planet, and they just want to support the bike project. So like, yeah, get more people cycling. The fact that it's also a, you know, a, a group of people that can really benefit from that, great. I just want to see more people on bikes. You might then have your supporters that feel very, very passionately about supporting refugees. Yep. And if you know that, you can think about how that Christmas appeal might look a little bit different. You might tell the same story, but you might just lean in a little bit more to the bike element with your supporters where that motivates them and the refugee story to the supporters where that motivates them. So again, doesn't need to be massively overcomplicated, doesn't need 500 million segments, but think about how you can use values, motivations and actions your sports have taken to, you know, in the initial um, email or letter that goes out on your landing page, it's going to be really clever because you have two segmented landing pages. Um, whatever it might be, don't try and do it all at once. If this is new to you, take one or two of those ideas and start there. Don't try and do it all, but just think about how you can personalize and segment. Because the data shows that it's going to help you to raise more money from your supporters. Absolutely. And I'm smiling, Sarah, because you said you were going to do that off the top of your head and you got it bang, <laughs> bang on right for the bike project. Excellent. I love the bike project. You know, I do too. So I, we have lots of questions coming through, but what we're going to do is we're going to, we've got those coming through and what we'll do is we will uh, make sure to answer those at the end. Um. Now, this is a controversial take, inviting donors to give regularly, even in a one-off appeal. We strongly recommend doing this here at Raisley, and we'll tell you why, because the data really, really supports it. I personally think that this is a great idea and should help also combat this increase in the cost of living crisis that we have seen. Now, what have we seen at, at Raisley in terms of the data? So here we go again. With no regular giving, we've got about 2,500 over the lifetime of the campaign itself. With regular giving, that has doubled, more than doubled. And I think it's actually really positive indication that individuals are ready to support charities on a longer term. Why would you ask someone to give regularly rather than just a one-off gift on an appeal? Well, for a couple of reasons. Due to the cost of living, someone may not be able to give you a big chunk upfront. You know, they may just not have it right now disposable in their income. What you can do is you can ask them to commit a smaller amount per month over the course of a certain period. And we have seen with the data that those people who register uh, or who donate to you through regular giving, whether that is regular giving or direct debit, actually tend to donate to a charity for 24 months. That's the average length that a donor supports a charity. The other reason why is because why would you stop donors from giving to you the way they want to give to you? I'm a big proponent of giving as many options as possible to donors so that they can support you in the way that they want to support you. And here's another brief um, uh tips from Sarah to to tell you um, how to get the most out of this. I love that you said it was controversial and I wonder if that's because I went, oh my God, that's so interesting. So <laughs> I think I think so. I mean <laughs> I mean you you'll know Sarah that generally when it comes to appeals or end of year or Christmas appeals, I think as as fundraisers we can be a bit shy. We're a bit concerned about putting donors off. So we go for 
you know, perhaps the smallest ask that we can, that we think we can sort of get away with or the, the easiest ask, if you know what I mean. So I'd love to hear some of your tips around yeah. how to push out regular giving. Definitely. I think it's, it's possible that sometimes we can be a bit modest with our asks. I know we touch on this in a bit as well. But I think also traditional direct marketing advice, traditional testing, postal testing has shown us that one ask, whether it's cash or regular giving, will perform better. Now, the form better is normally in terms of response rates. So the idea is if you try and give people too many options, fewer people will respond because they've got too many choices. I love that doing this digitally with Raisley, giving people the option to give regularly as well, is actually bucking that trend because I blimming love not taking things for granted. Just let, let's all know the bane of our life is, well, we've always done it that way. So just because that has always traditionally worked doesn't mean that we might then start finding new things, our donors' behaviours change, et cetera, et cetera. And actually, about five, six years ago, I was at a charity where we'd never done a Christmas end of the year appeal before. I was doing it. We needed more regular donors, and I put both asks in there, and it was really successful. Granted, I didn't have a benchmark, so I couldn't say if it was more or less than if we'd done just cash. But the following year, I did just cash, and it raised about the same, but obviously not as much lifetime value of the regular donors. So be brave, test, buck trends. Um, like I say, traditionally, one ask is the thing that works best, but there is data here to show that that's not always the case. So that, that's a yeah. test, definitely. Do and if you are going to make a regular giving ask, either just regular giving instead of a one-off or integrated, the ask, the impact of the gift, and then your stewardship will need a little bit of adjustment because the impact of a one-off gift can look a little bit different to the impact of a regular gift. It might not. It will really depend on your story, your cause, your charity. But just give it that time and space to think about that. You don't want to say, please give £10, which could do X, and then £10 a month will do the exact same thing. You might just want to adjust that a tiny bit. If you're in a very fortunate position where you have got loads of regular givers currently, A, winning at life, and you are awesome. Um, But if you have got lots of them, one of the things you might want to think about, going back to that segmenting, rather than going to those regular givers and asking them for a one-off gift, I don't know if you ask them to upgrade. What about if you asked them if they could manage a little bit more each month? I did this at the same charity, actually, where I was looking after IG, where um, we'd had a 25% increase in our helpline calls. And so I did a regular giving upgrade appeal asking if people could upgrade by 25%. Now, that feels quite high. Most of our regular donors gave about two quid a month. So that 25% more meant we now give £2.25 a month. Most donors turned around and went, God love you for being so modest in your ass, make it a fiver. And they doubled it or quadrupled it. So again, it's about that linking back to impact where you can and being creative in your different donors that you're talking to. You could use the same story, the same campaign to your current regular donors and see if you can inspire them to give just that little bit more each month. Perfect. I'm going to jump to one question. I believe it was Becky who just asked, if are we suggesting um, that we test regular giving asks as well as the usual cash ask in our Christmas appeal? I think... For sure, you should do that. Go ahead, test the regular giving ask using some of the tips that we've given you here, using some of the tips that Sarah has just given you. And I think it's really important to do that because at what point would you have this chance? Every single campaign gives you the option to test and learn. We are scared of the learn part because, you know, as fundraisers, that feels like failure because we haven't actually, you know, gained any ROI or additional um, increase in donations, but you will have the data to make your next campaign even more successful. Definitely. I would suggest if you're going to test it, 
test it with your groups of donors, your segments that are going to be most likely to become regular donors. So test it with your um, one-off donors your, that give on a fairly regular or a frequent basis. So maybe they give two, three, four times a year, a bit ad hoc, but they're already giving semi-regularly. So might be able to give on a regular basis. Um, I personally think volunteers are brilliant. They're already that engaged that they give their time. A small monthly ask, a small monthly gift can sometimes feel like a more managed ask than a one-off cash gift. Um, but exactly as Will has said, test and learn. Be brave. Be brave in the learn part. Amazing. The questions are coming thick and fast, so we may skip over a couple of slides, if that's okay with you, Sarah. In questions is what people would rather ask, and I can, yeah. I can shorten some of my bits as well, where I just jump to the top tips and don't ramble so much. Yeah, you're not rambling at all. Here's another brief case study, but in short, this is another case study that essentially said um, it's really important to go ahead and donate, um, test that kind of regular giving. So you can see that it's got a one-off, but also a monthly um, ask. We've already covered this. So let's go to um, the final tip that we have for now. It's making the ask boldly. The data shows that what you want to do is don't just stick to um, asking small amounts, five pounds, 10 pounds. Obviously, the caveat here is that it depends on your audience and on your supporters. But where possible, the data shows that you can make the ask really quite boldly. Under data that we have seen in Raisley, 3% of donors have funded 33% of the total income of a campaign. Now, those are individuals that we're happy to give over £100. Um, and that is actually quite a significant amount. That takes me back to the point I was making earlier, which is essentially don't restrict your donors from giving in the way that they that they actually want to give. I strongly recommend, therefore, that you do a bit of research into how are your donors currently giving and where can you have a bold ask, you know, is it an extra 25%, 50% or even double and see whether that resonates with the individuals that want to donate. Another way that you can do that with Raisley is that we have an option to have personalization. Now, I stuck this in here because all I hear lately is all about AI. AI, how can you use AI to help fundraising? AI is brilliant, and I think it's going to herald a lot of uh, support um, across the, give, give us a lot of support across the entire sector. But it's a statistical model. What we can do here at Raisley is we can use data that you already have about your donors and personalize the donation form based on their name and also how much they have given before. We would do this via obviously email, which as we talked about is one of the, the strongest channels that you can use to shout about your appeal itself. So if you want to hear a little bit more about personalization, feel free to book a chat with me at a certain point and I'll be happy to talk about that or fundraising um, and anything else you want to know. I love that because again, going back to traditional direct marketing postal packs, we would have personalized asks in there. Like that regular giving one I talked about, it was their current amount plus 25%, plus 50%, et cetera. And even though you would think it would be easier to do that digitally, I'm not seeing it much. So I love Exactly. And, <laughs> and, and what you can do here is you can also take into account what's happened during this cost of living crisis. Have you not seen your regulars givers drop off? Okay, this is the point where you ask what they donated last year, plus 25%, plus 50%. Have you seen your regular givers or your cash um, givers drop off a little bit? Well, don't don't scare them by asking for a bigger amount, but also don't 
let them think that the only option is to keep giving what they have been giving or nothing at all. Give them the option to give 75% of what they gave before or 60%. You are still getting that income and you're keeping them engaged um, so that when they can give more, they'll be able to give more. Okay. Um, yes. Um, I think now for a little bit of interaction, we'll do a word cloud. Um, and the question on the um, word cloud uh, will be, um, what is your biggest concern regarding your end of year appeal? So again, you can use the feedback and polls button below the chat and just one word, one phrase um, and let us know. While people are doing that, should I go on to the first slides? I'm aware of time. I want to try and get through as much content as I can. Should I go sure. on to first? The later. Yeah. So let's touch on stewardship just a tiny bit and then we'll go back to the word cloud and then go on to storytelling maybe. Should we do that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So... My, one of my biggest, biggest tips, when you're planning your appeal, your campaign, please plan your thanking, plan your stewardship at the same time. Too often, it becomes an add-on. The appeal's already gone out the door. The emails have sent and we go, oh yeah, how am I thanking these supporters? It should be an integral part of your appeal plan. Absolutely. And when you're building that stewardship, when you're thinking about your plans and content, I want you to think about these three dials. These are three key principles of stewardship and what I want you to think about is that all of them need to be in there at different points, but it's about dialing them up or dialing them down, depending on what you're doing. Yes, of course, you're going to have a thank you when someone makes their gifts, but you might also have a wrap up thank you a month afterwards. You might also have some other touch points. Be creative with your stewardship. Think about what you want your supporters to think, feel and do from those communications and think about these three dials. The first is impact. Your supporters want to know the money they raise is making a difference. Use your stories, use their values, use other people's voices and words. Really think about how you can show the impact of your supporters' gift. Your supporters want to feel want to see gratitude. They want to feel appreciated for everything that they're doing. Again, yes, we can say thank you, but think about how you can do that creatively. I've got a couple of other tips and a few slides. But really, my big thing there is where can you use other people's voices? Can you use the voice of someone who has been a beneficiary of your services? Can you use the voice of someone who is delivering your work? Can you use the voice of a volunteer? Think about where else you can use that gratitude. And then also variety. Your supporters want the opportunities to be able to give their support. Really think about, obviously not in your thank you. In your thank you, we don't ask for something else. We're saying thank you for that. But elsewhere in your stewardship, in your follow one after the appeal, what else can you be talking to people about? These don't have to be big actions. They can be micro actions like, did you see the video for our appeal on our Facebook page? Please go and give it a like. Did you not get our appeal emails? You only saw it on Instagram? Oh, sign up to the emails here. That's other ways for your supporters to be involved, a little tiny micro action. Excellent. Let's show the word cloud. Has anyone, I think there's been a few votes. Let's have a look at what people are feeling. Cost of living, okay. <laughs> it's all there. Absolutely. Donor fatigue. That's really, really interesting um, because, of course, it's been a very difficult few years. So we're going to talk about donor fatigue as well. That's come up a few times. Tired donor base. Um, segmentations, effectively. I hope we've got some lovely tips from Sarah there as well. And other asks and events. Yes, there have been a qu few questions around um, it, about asking people to support you more. I think for me, and I would love to know what Sarah thinks here, I think you should not be too concerned about asking people to support you as long as you're not doing it back to back 
too many asks can, of course, exhaust people. Now, I think someone, and I apologize, I may have lost it in all the questions. There was someone who asked, um, you know, we are already asking people to donate, uh, for example, items or food donations. So question from Elle. Um, how can we strike the balance, for example, working at food banks and needing an increased amount of food donations, as well as raising money at this time? I think it's all about understanding your audience. Your audience is either going to support you with one or the other or both. Those individuals who are supporting you with an item will give you that item in lieu of giving you money. And those that don't have that item to give but still want to support you will give you the money or they will find another way to support you, volunteering, fundraising. Essentially, it is about how can you put across the message of what you need and what you want to achieve and how you can do it with their support. Sarah, what do you think? I, yeah, I, I do agree with that. And I think also, though, it's about we make assumptions about our donors sometimes. And at that point, mm. both, both things here. One, the questions around donor fatigue. I'm just going to gently challenge back to people. and You have to answer now, but take this and think about it. Do you know that's a fact or are we assuming that? You might know it's a fact. You might have had some very, very, very solid data and feedback from your supporters. But also sometimes, I think us as fundraisers, we get a little bit mama bear protective about mm -hmm. our donors and make decisions for them rather than actually finding out. If your supporters care about your cause, and I say cause, not your particular charity, your supporters care about the change you're trying to make in the world. And if they care about that, if that is part of their values, they want to take action to try and sort that. The action they're going to take is going to vary massively based on because he lives, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I can't even just said that. Someone, shoot me. Dear God. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, based on all of these things, I can't believe I said that on the recording. I'm actually going to drop a little bit. Um, I was trying to be funny. It's failed miserably. Anyway, moving on. Um, whatever the reasons are why they might not be able to take action at this very moment is not because they no longer care about your call. Absolutely. This is why we vary our asks and we do keep making those asks to give our supporters the opportunity to be involved in different ways. Mm -hmm. And this is why I preach public fundraising. If you're only ever asking your cash donors for a cash gift, that might give them fatigue. If you're asking your supporters collectively about the different ways they can get involved mm -hmm. based on motivation, segmentation, etc., they're going to be more inspired to want to keep giving. Um, so, yeah, and also I think sometimes don't make decisions for our supporters. We sometimes think they know more about our work in detail than they actually do. Absolutely. How many people actually know for a fact that food banks need money and not just food? Because the ask they always see is we need these items. Make your appeal about the cash ask. I did an appeal for a food bank once where it was exactly that and it was saying we can't store fresh fruit and veg we can't store fresh milk. We can't store fresh bread. It will go bad before we can get it into the hands of people. We need to buy it on the day. We can only buy it on the day it's being given out if you donate to us. So when you're donating, you're helping to keep the food bank running. You're helping our volunteers to provide that cup of tea, but you're also actually going to be able to provide the stuff that we can't store. So we One. knew those donors' motivations, but turned it back into a cash ask. Oh, I love that. I love that. Being really, really clear with your ask. Okay, we've got a few more slides which we're going to whiz through and then we're going to get to the many, many questions we're getting. Um, but you can also get in touch with Sarah or myself afterwards. Um, we'll leave our contact details. So let's go for it. Cool. So I want to talk a little bit about the feelings um, that an appeal can bring. Um, actually, whoever's on the slide thing, can we find... No, actually, don't worry. It's in a whole other section. Don't worry. I'm going to come on to it. I'm going to come on to it. Ignore me. Ignore me. <laughs> anyway. worry. Broadly speaking, think about the emotions that you want your supporters to feel. When it comes to stewardship, so I've got myself confused, 
You want your supporters to feel joy for having given. They want to feel that they've done something really good. And joy is brilliant because it combats stress. It boosts our resilience. It makes us feel connected to our communities and part of it. And this is what's going to help address some of that donor fatigue. It's one thing if you've given a donation and you get a mediocre, thank you very much, you go, okay, good, they appreciated it. If you get a thank you that makes you feel buzzed and excited and joyful, you're going to want to give again because joy, there's this whole thing of the cycle of surprise and joy. So you want to create that cycle by giving your donor an unexpected, um, joyful, delightful thank you and stewardship experience. They're surprised by that. And in turn, they're going to want to surprise you again by supporting you again. And the joyful cycle continues. So really think about using your stewardship to not just give thanks, but to spark joy. Awesome. And a few very quick top tips on how you can do that little bit of sprinkle of fundraising magic that will bring that joy. Really key thing, the human brain is really sensitive to spotting differences. Something simple like handwriting the envelope, sticking Mm. it in a coloured envelope, using an actual stamp, using a little thank you sticker. That example there has got all of those. But even just one of those things, it will stand out on the doormat compared to something else. Likewise, in your email, use their name in the subject line, use an emoji, use a video, use a personalized video for certain segments of supporters. Fun, mm. boy, spark surprise, spark delight. And also, don't be afraid of picking up the sign. Mm. It might not be all your supporters, it might not be for every gift. If you've got a phone number, get some volunteers on those phones. Phone and have a human connection and a human moment. Think of how you can sprinkle that fundraising magic to your supporters. Love Feel free to share ideas in the chat box as well with each other of things you can do. Yeah, please do. Cool. So I want to talk very briefly about your appeal story because the story that you're going to tell is going to be the thing that is going to inspire your donors to take action and to give. So let's think a little bit about how we can find and tell that appeal story. So first and foremost, why are we telling stories? Why are we not just saying... Um, Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> sorry. We were going to try so hard to not have to do that. Um, so brings why, back pandemic memories. <laughs> so why stories? Why are we not just going, we need this. This is important. Please give this now. Because stories actually help us to understand really complex concepts. You know, stories have been around since we were sitting around campfires um, and living in, you know, in, in rural wilderness. Because they help us to explain the inexplicable and make sense of our world. They help us make order out of chaos, pass on valuable lessons and explore and share the depths of the emotions that we feel as, you know, quite complex creatures. And remember that storytelling is an experience, whether you're the one doing the telling or the one listening or reading and taking in that story. And if the events experience boom, pre-pandemic and now, you know, things like secret cinema and, you know, cocktail brunches with extravagant cocktails or whatever, we value experiences. Because our experiences give us connections, they entertain us, they help us to feel our emotions, they create deep-rooted memories. And that is what your stories are. Your story is an experience and they're going to invoke some feelings in your supporters. And that's something really, really key to talk about. Now it's the slide that I was thinking of earlier. (laughs) Because when we talk about engaging our feelings, we can sometimes be quite limited in what that means. But this is, look at the huge range of emotions that we feel as humans. Your story could tap into any one or any combination of these. The link's in the bottom. I appreciate that font's really, really small. If anyone's got any clever ways to how I can display this without giving everyone eye problems, but go and have a look at it online. The feelings will. It's a really common, common tool. Think about the emotions you want your story to, to bring to your supporters. 
A story might be sad. It might be talking about someone that sadly died as a result of a medical condition your charity works for, or maybe a hospice or a hospital. But within that story, it could be filled with moments of joy and fond memories. A story might be really scary and possibly quite overwhelming. It could be the story of someone coming to this country in a boat in a really dangerous situation. Mm. That story could be told balanced with a feeling of hope and a new future. A story might simply be inspirational, you know, catching us right in the fields, right here about the power of the human spirit. Mm. So think about what the feelings are that a story brings up for you as the storyteller and for your listeners or your readers. It doesn't and shouldn't just be pity. Please don't do pity fundraising, I beg you. So from some top tips to think about helping your story to stick in someone's mind. I talk quite a lot about sticky storytelling. First and foremost, have a picture of the person that you're writing about in your mind. Write with honesty and integrity and that may, write it in such a way that you should always be proud to show the subjects of your story what you've written. Ideally, they should see it anyway, but depending on the story, that might not be the case. And if you question if they would be proud to read what you've written, it needs some reworking. And when you're finding that person whose story you're going to tell, find someone who is relatable in some way to your audiences or something in the story that is relatable. This is why we tell the story of one person in your appeals. Don't talk about a group. Don't talk about a whole community. Don't talk about a whole country. Find one person because we know what it's like to live as one person but we don't know what it's like to live as a community of 500 people. And wherever you can, start with that other person's voice. You know, especially if you're telling their story, don't try and tell their story for them. Tell their story how they told their story. What did they say and how? You know, that's fine if it's not in correct grammatical English. That's fine. It should sound like a conversation. It should feel like a friend talking. So start with what they've shared with you. And then still in any gaps around anything that might need a tiny bit of clarity or giving a more rounded picture. But always, always start with their words and keep their words as close to how they shared it with you as you can. And wherever you can, find something that's in those little details, something personal, something a little different, something that's a little bit out of place, something that makes that story unique. And one of the things that can really make that story unique is around engaging the senses because our senses and our memories are hugely connected. So, you know, think about smell. Sometimes you might walk past someone on the street wearing a perfume and you're back to remembering someone you went to school with that wore that same perfume. So is there something in your story that can help them imagine something relatable? Maybe a familiar smell or a taste. I tell a story about fish and chips and I'll happily tell it. And we'll get in contact with me, but I haven't quite got time. But if I mention the smell of the vinegar or the taste of the vinegar, we can almost Mm. take mouths immediately. Or if I say, bring the sound of the school bell ringing at the end of the day, we can all hear our school bell. Mm. Think about how you can engage senses through the written word to help your story stick in someone's mind. Um, I had three wrap-up top tips, but I'm very happy to go to questions. Let's just, let's just dive straight into those questions. Yeah, let's dive straight into questions. So I think the 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 question I would love to answer while this is coming up on the screen I'm just going to remind you again that you have um, a delegate bag with lots of resources and on the top right hand side of your screen you will see a um, big red button and in that big red button you will have the Raisley framework for planning and launching 
um, your appeal, step-by-step framework that we've put together for you. Um, so we hopefully you will have all that data in there and you will find it really, really, really useful. Okay, let's go to um, a question from Emma. Um, when you have such a small time frame, like one week for the big give, how many comms is too much when you have a tight turnaround? The data on our end has shown it is one um, email, one email, one message um, per donor per week. So what you want to do for the lifetime of the campaign. So yes, it's one week. So therefore you don't want to send them too many um, emails. I would say obviously your pre-launch and then I would I would do an update in the middle to showcase how much you've raised, get people really excited about potentially helping you again or giving you a little bit more or sharing it with their friends. And then that fundraising magic that Sarah uh, talks about, the thank you comms at the end. So you don't have to just think about that little week where you are trying to raise as much money. You know, just because these people have donated during that week doesn't mean that your donors can't donate again. Or as you said, Sarah, that they can become involved with you in another way. Exactly. I'd also say this is where if you're working with a, um, a giving appeal like the Big Give where there's a fixed time frame, um, the reason why we have a fixed time frame is to inspire that urgency, right? But also if you're running your own match giving appeal, you can flex that a little bit. If a week feels like just far too short of a time, you can make it two weeks. You can make it the month of December. It, it doesn't matter. You can flex that. Um, just make sure you do have a very clear cutoff date that no donations after this date will be matched because it just gives that, I say, that urgency for people to give. Absolutely. Okay, another question. Um, what did you what do you do about the fear by asking regular givers more and then for them to drop off? Sarah, what do you think? I think it's a valid fear as fundraisers, because we're always worried about losing our donors. It is not based in a huge amount of data now off the top of my head raising might just go in and do some digging into this i actually do have some stats oh, but go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> a bit qualitatively it is very 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 rare you might get the odd ones maybe yeah. at worst they'll just keep giving at their regular giving level Absolutely. very 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 rarely are your donors going to drop off because you've not heard they've not heard from you if yeah. anything it's just going to remind them and re-engage them about how awesome you are they might not all upgrade but if they're still continuing to give their regular gifts, fine. The, the likelihood is cancel it, do nothing, upgrade, give a cash gift as well as, or upgrade and a cash gift. And my God, look after those people. Get on the phone to those people and give them so much love. Absolutely. We actually ran recently a test on regular giving um, and a regular giving upgrade to a single ask across all of our charities. And we saw that the regular giving fundraise fundraising was almost 2.5 times higher with the upsell on compared with the upsell off. And this brings me back to the fact that we, and what Sarah was just saying, we sometimes assume what our donors want um, without giving the, them the option to engage with us in the way that they want. 2.5 times more in with the regular giving upsell on versus that one off. I mean, anyone would want 2.5 times more donations, wouldn't they? Definitely. There's a great question and it actually combos with another question. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to combo them if that doesn't cause our on-screen techie people too much problems. <laughs> so one question is, how do you grow your audiences or donors when the charity is more of a niche cause that doesn't resonate mm -hmm. with any? Love and then that. there's another question that says, what kind of a story of need do you suggest for a museum? So I'm going to talk broadly and then I'll talk a little bit about museums. All causes exist because there is a change, a difference, a problem, 
that we want to see in the world or like a solution to that problem or a change or something more positive happening. Those call, That exists because someone somewhere cared enough about it to set up that charity and make that the case. Your charity is continuing to exist because people care about that. They really, really, really do. And the real trick to it is to find out who does this appeal to and why. Because once you know that, you're going to be able to find your supporters. And the example I've got here is I worked with an amazing small charity a couple of years ago um, who work with women with experience of the criminal justice system. And that's a change in language. I think when I first worked with them, it was women with convictions. Language is important. And on the face of it, working with women who have been in prison or have been under some form of experience with the criminal justice system and are now looking at getting back into work, not necessarily the cause that most people are going to jump to give to, much like refugees. The people who care about it, care about it. But there's a there are percentages of our population that maybe are less enthused about those causes and we're not going to talk about them. Um, but, you know, there, it is more of a niche cause. But what this charity had figured out was that when they started talking about the feminist angle of their work, so for example, women with convictions are more likely to get um, more harsh convictions for lesser crimes than men, for example. And yeah, I, I can't remember the exact data, which is why I'm being quite broad. I can probably dig it out. But um, that just in immediately in me sparks my feminist values of that's not right. Where is equity? Where is equality? How is this the case? I'm up on my soapbox and I want to be part of that. You know, it's back to the example of the bike project. I, you know, it's great. It's refugees, but really I care about bikes and it being eco-friendly. I don't mind just more people cycling is good in my book. Mm. Really seek to try and understand what are your supporters' values, what is important to them, and do that by talking to them. This is, again, where public fundraising comes into play. Within just individual giving, we might do some surveys, we might get some insight, but you know who speaks to your supporters on a regular basis and hears this stuff inside out? community fundraisers mm. go out into the community hear from your supporters talk to them and find out what that is with the museum in particular um ellen i think it was um i did some work with the museum recently and i could so tangent this into a two-hour session about finding this but again let's about, book another one of these <laughs> about what your supporters values are why is that museum important is it inspiring a love of science is it about protecting the planet is it about this key historical event that happened, like suffrage or, you know, whatever it might be? Think about why your supporters come, why your visitors come to that museum and keep honing down into the why is that important? Why is that important to find in the story to tell around? Mm, absolutely. Um, I'd love to answer one more. Well, I think we, we might have time for a couple more questions, but you can get in touch with both Sarah and I. If you download the slides, which again are in your delegate bag, it's got all of our contact details in there. So you can catch us there or you can catch us on Twitter, of course, um, and LinkedIn and all the social media. So the next question I'd love to answer is, do we know the data on how many donors to end of year appeal to the end of year, I believe, are current donors versus new donors. So, um, Steph, you've mentioned that you're really new to fundraising with a low pool of current supporters. Um, at the Bike Project, we found that email was the most effective messaging, um, the most effective medium for getting our uh, appeal funded. That doesn't mean that that's the only channel you should stick to, particularly if you have a low supporter uh, pool. Why don't you use your supporters to go out and be advocates? These people are already supporting you. They are already passionate about you and they're already really excited to give you money. 
they have friends, they have family, they have a social network. You can ask them to spread the word far and wide, as well as when you are doing your own work about you know marketing yourself and making sure that you are getting them to act as little marketeers for you. Yeah, totally. Again, public fundraising, talk to your community groups, talk to your fundraisers, talk to your different pools of supporters. And if you're doing traditional marketing for your appeal, you will see lower response rates from cold than from warm. It's just the nature of the beast, unless it is something that is maybe so um, in the public eye, so tangible, so relevant, the war in Ukraine being an example, you know, uh, yeah, going up. Um, unless it really captures it and, again, I'm going to say another thing that's going to make me feel gross, goes viral. This is not a, no plan for that. That's not going to happen. That is an, oh, well, no one was expecting that. Let's now yeah. respond to it. Generally, if you're doing cold marketing, you're going to have smaller response rates, but your goal shouldn't be about raising net income from cold at your appeal. If you're going out to cold, it's about bringing on board donors, try and aim to cover your costs at best, and then develop and support those donors, give them phenomenal stewardship to want to give again, to want to become regular donors, et cetera, in the future. Yeah, we're about time, aren't we? We're about there. About We are about to run out of time. Um, but yes, I just want to say a big, big thank you to everyone for joining us. I'm I'm thrilled with the fact that you've all joined us. I'm thrilled with how many questions. I'm so sorry we couldn't get to every single question. But again, I want to repeat that our details are in that slideshow that you can download and feel free to connect with us. You can find me um, on the Racely website and also on Twitter and LinkedIn. And the same with Sarah on her website and on Twitter and LinkedIn as well. Um, We'll both be around for a little bit. Sarah's Twitter is at Fundraiser Sarah on Twitter. We'll be around this afternoon. Chat to us. Mine is Muna Me with two eyes at the end at Muna M I I at, um, at on Twitter as well. And of course, you can connect with me via Raisley. Again, thank you so so much. I really hope this data um, helped you, and I really hope that you have got the best campaign in mind. And we're here to help you succeed with anything you need. Please feel free to contact us. Take care. And thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. An amazing afternoon. Thank you so much for listening to the Fundraising Everywhere podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not share it with a fundraising friend? And if you would like to give us a little like or subscribe, it really helps more fundraisers like you find us. Thank you so much. See you next time.